John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 681.2S1918, certificate number 19361, the Kalakala. The streamlined fad embraces the humble ferry boat. Here's the Kalakala, last word in modern construction on her initial trip from Seattle to Bremerton. Or the Kalakala, as I just heard an old-timey newsreel the guy Kala say. The Kalakala sails across Puget Sound. Kalakala is correct, right? Kalakala is, is the accepted pronunciation, at least around here. Kalakala. Do, 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 do. Um, before we get there, uh, I should say, as a disclaimer, that for today's show, I prepared at, at, at great length um, a show about. Give us some idea of the quantum of time and effort. Hours. Well, hours, know, hours, of, hours and hours. Hours and of internet hours of rabbit holes. Um, uh, to do a show on Hands Across America, and it was only after I arrived at the this was a request studio today. This was a request from a listener named Andrew who supported the show on Patreon and, and sent us a list of topics. And I talked to you about it last night. I said I'm going to do Hands Across America, and you said what great topic. Sure, you know, yeah, let's do it. And then when we arrived here at the bunker, we looked up at the giant board. Uh, that we keep here on the wall, the giant electric board of, it's got of the past t- shows. Every time we do a new show, it does the little European <laughs> train station thing. It goes... And of the 400 omnibuy, the 400 omnibuses... Omnibodes. ...that we've done, it turns out we did Hands Across America. And it was disconcerting to us both... That neither of us were like, didn't we do that a, like a year and a half ago? We didn't even really think about it. And even more disconcerting to me, who spent hours and hours researching it. <laughs> again. And, again. <laughs> and uh, and what what's funny is that as I was researching it, the familiarity of all of the stuff, the uh, Bob Geldof and Paula Yates, the Ethiopian famine, the, you know, all of the stuff. You that, just thought this was lived... John Roderick lore. Right. Of course I know all that stuff because this is exact. It's the, it is the whole premise of Omnibus that we do shows about things that we would otherwise just be researching for fun, for fun. And yes, of course I've gone down a rabbit hole about the Ethiopian famine and I know all about eighties pop culture. So none of it, the familiarity of all the information never translated to me going, wait a minute, I've told this story. I think I was fooled by Andrew, who suggested it as a topic, which made me think, oh, we must have, you know, just yammered on about Hands Across America at some point, but never done a full show about it, which is true of many things that we yammer on about. Like, 
it would not be unlike us to yammer on about some forgotten bit of 80s nostalgia. We could have talked about Hands Across America for for 30% of a show about a completely different topic. And then got back into the Polish army or something. Yeah. And what's funny is I thought briefly, did I do a show about the famines in Ethiopia, which also could be a omnibus topic? I thought maybe it had been USA for Africa. I thought maybe that had been the show. But it's all, yeah, but it's also, I mean, that's a big part of it. Anyway, so I, I came prepared um, and I don't, I still, we talked about it before we started recording. I still don't remember all the things I covered. And I'm, I'm very curious because I got to the end of my preparation and uh, happened upon the sport aid uh like attempt to raise money for Africa, which was actually a very successful global uh, marathon competition that encompassed 274 cities globally, ran marathons. Simultaneous marathons. Simultaneous marathons to raise money for Africa. And it was, it coincided with a, a UNICEF conference which just happened to also be happening on May 25th, which was the day of Hands Across America. Oh. And so, were there marathons trying to get through the, the walls of people? This is the thing because Hands Across America had, uh, whatever, you know, Ronald Reagan and, uh, and Yoko Ono holding hands. Although in London, 200,000 people showed up to run the marathon. In New York, it was only 4,000 people because everybody was over <laughs> at the George Washington Bridge holding hands. Uh, and that seemed like a thing I hadn't talked about in the in the episode before. It seemed like a new discovery. Maybe the show should have been Sport Aid. Sport, well, the thing is that, I mean, Sport Aid. It's a terrible name. It sounds like an electrolyte drink. It's pretty bad. And But the, the, the best thing about Sport Aid is that um, although Hands Across America was kind of a financial bust, and unlike all of the big singles that raised tens of millions of dollars, it actually took money away from Ethiopian children. It basically, you know, it it it's they spent like more money making T-shirts than they made selling yeah. T-shirts. Uh, but Sport Aid made a ton of money. Uh, Sport Aid actually was a huge, a huge success, like sixty-five million dollars or something. I now decree it. that we should forget. The Kalakala and just talk about Sport Aid now for well, the rest of the show. I'm afraid, you know, I'm, I'm afraid. That I, have, that, I have drunk the Sport Aid, John. <laughs> that uh, that exhausts my because Sport Aid was going to be the way that I landed the episode. Like, and guess what? Turns out it sabotaged a better fundraiser. Yeah, but um, I've well, I've had the same disconcerting thing happen uh, a couple times recently where I sat down to like watch a movie I was really looking forward to. There was uh, like a uh, Oscar winning Canadian movie called. Um, Anson D, I think, mm-hmm. like fires that I was going to watch. And I was so excited because I'd heard of so many great things about it. I finally get the, you know, Blu-ray for whatever. I rented it or something and I pop it in and I sit down to watch it. And I'm like, oh, I saw this three years ago. This, <laughs> this movie I was, and I never, that never used to happen to me. Like if, if I read something once, I just remembered the name and I, and I assumed that would always be the way. And then I turned 40. Well, so we're both, uh, you know, we're both, collapsing into middle age but i but we also spend a lot of time in our private time talking about the fact that neither of us gets very much much sleep or rest even um i get no me, sleep me because of my schedule and you, you get because no of rest. apnea 
Yeah, or or a uh, fear of death is what keeps me from sleeping. I think I never want to close my eyes because if I do, then the ghouls you might not you might not reopen them. No, they'll carry me across the river. Sticks. The tigers come at night. Uh, and so I'm hoping that as we both, as your schedule settles down, as and as I seek treatment for my sleep disorders, maybe our memories will return and we will be healthy again. Our skin will will become. Nice and rosy pink instead of the ash and gray. Who would buy an omnibus t-shirt that says, I'm not dumb, I'm just underslept? (laughs) It's not dementia, (laughs) it's apnea. Well, so in order to do a show today that isn't, I mean, I, we, we briefly considered, and I still am wondering whether or not I should just do Hands Across America again. Part two. <laughs> and it's not even part two. It's just like, how would the show be if you, you know, you listen to them side by sure. side and see which is the better every, show? Every, you know, every three years, Hollywood makes some King Arthur or Robin Hood movie that nobody wants or sees. That's right. How many Spider-Man reboots have there exactly. been? Exactly. Let's reboot Hands Across America. And I'll just, I'll, I'll I'm, I'm, I'm guessing I've gotten better at doing the show because we've got enough of them under our belts, but maybe not. Maybe we were young and fresh and our first two albums were great. We do seem to be in decline. And now we're just like, and then I said, burr, 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 burr. I actually remember one thing from the Hands Across America show, which is um, we were talking about how because Ronald Reagan was in the chain, you could, you could, you know, you could assassinate him from eight states away if you wanted to with a sufficiently... High voltage. Yeah, but you'd also you'd also you'd kill Oprah. You'd sure. kill Yoko Ono. You know, and where would we be now? Where would we be? Uh, so instead, I have pivoted to Andrew's other choice. You know, I wanted to do maybe Andrew's. Andrew had an idea to do a show about the guy, the speed talking guy from the '80s commercials, right? And I thought that was a little thin on the ground, but I did think there could be an omnibus in. People who have become briefly famous for talking weird, fast talking in history, not just fast talking, but talking. yeah. Like the mouth noises guy from Police Academy and the Donald Duck guy, and you mentioned Ernest. Ernest. Well, what about Bobby McFerrin? Is he sure. singing? But it's still a kind of weird thing. There was a white mouth sounds guy, like in the pre-Police Academy days. I think he was like a Prairie Home Companion guy, and he uh-huh. put out a best-selling book about how to make. Oh, well, you know, oh, you can weird. make that. That's nice. That's what I learned from the book. My brother learned how to do the theremin thing, where you hum and whistle at the same time, so you sound like a '50s UFO. I've always wondered about circular singing, being able to, yeah. you know, the Frank Sinatra thing where you can you hold the note for a long time because you're breathing in as you Did as we you talk out. about circular singing in the Tuva show? I feel show? like we talked about it during the, the Hands Across America episode. <laughs> the Hands Across America episode contained multitudes. Every omnibus is within it. Yeah. It just opens like a lotus petal. If you think about how exciting beatboxing was when it first showed up, what the fat boys had, uh, you know, they were they were making their own beats with their by kind of going <laughs> and all the all the college acapella guys were probably mad that the fat boys were stealing their um right their vocal toolbox do 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 yeah <laughs> bowser was all hey i've been doing that for years love peace and hair grease <laughs> so instead of all these ideas we well, landed on the most seattle show of them all it really is the most seattle show and and you know we're there's uh we we have a regional culture here in the Northwest that you and I are both very both steeped in and very proud of. I know we have listeners uh, all around the world and also throughout, throughout time. time. So um, Seattle's a, you know it's just an island. It's just an underwater city and whatever you call it, the Elliott Sea now. Right, the there, vast Puget Inland Sea. There are like 19 buildings that uh, only the the top five floors are above the ocean. The Space Needle is now a ground-level restaurant. <laughs> 
But uh, but I, you know, to all of our listeners in uh, in Leeds or Auckland or Tokyo, no, nope, that's it, just Leeds and Auckland. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, I know for a fact that we have a couple of listeners in Riyadh because they have emailed me a few times. Well, several, uh, probably dozens of listeners in uh, in Israel. Sure. Very popular in Haifa. Belgrade, Cape Town, who knows? Mm-hmm. The Niger River Delta, impossible to say. They might all be saying, not another Seattle episode, but you have only begun to hate our Seattle episodes. Uh, Seattle, uh, is now, I was looking at that old, did you see that recently unearthed Nirvana at UW, uh, clip from 1990? At the hub. Yeah. They given it, it's like, it might be their first ever recorded interview. They look so young and happy. Yeah. It's a, it's an, it's actually an interview. It's, I'm, I think it's after a show. Those they, were sweet times. They used the word grunge in 1990, and it really reminded me of a time when Seattle was kind of. Uh, did they snark it? Did the, they throw snark on it? Or, no. Oh, they were no, they're just like, well, what kind of music do you prefer? Oh, it's like kind of a grungy kind of punk, or you know, grungy kind of pop, or, or you know, whatever they say. They they opened for Tad at that show, right? Is that the that sounds right uh, yeah, actually? Right. But I was just reminding me of a time when Seattle would be on the forefront of international culture and not and not you know comfortably behind it in middle age. Like today, and that was true of you know the early '60s. You know there was you know the brief moment where America discovered Seattle, discovered as, Seattle. as a new Kennedy era frontier. Yeah, there had uh, my mom always talked about the fact that when you watched a national news report, they gave the they gave the weather in Chicago, and then San Francisco, and everything between Chicago and San Francisco to the northwest was just terra incognita. It had not been discovered. Yeah, I re- the I re- Pony Express, I guess. The Pony Express was still running in the in the 1950s. They didn't even worry about the <laughs> yeah, weather, but it never came to Seattle either. <laughs> no, uh, I remember being in Spain in the in like 1995, and there was a bar in Marbella called Seattle Bar, <laughs> and I remember walking in and just feeling so proud. You know, they had a picture of Chris Cornell on the wall. So the decor, was like, it was a grunge. It was so bar. grunge, and it was, and they were just playing grunge music over the stereo. And it was '95. It felt. It what felt if that very had taken early. off? Like you know how there's Irish bars in every yeah. city. What if Seattle there had been bar. all appropriationy Seattle bars everywhere in the world? If there had just been something that bridged the gap between Soundgarden and and Modest Mouse that was not the presidents of the United States of America, so that there was some <laughs> continuity, right? Um, I think we had to do something else. It could not be, it couldn't be rock music. We again. couldn't still be grunge. We yeah. would have had to do, we would have had to invent some kind of cuisine or something. And instead we just, we just gave you Amazon. Amazon, I'm, I'm afraid, is the sad story. Blue Origins is what we'll be remembered for because uh, everyone listening to this program will be living on an off earth colony we'll all be wearing jeff bezos cowboy hats <laughs> you're, you're floating around your little cabin listening to us uh but our story actually begins in san francisco uh which is true of so many stories about seattle because you know what the weather is like there. <laughs> but also like here san francisco was the first really big west coast town and seattle made its bones uh, initially mining coal that we shipped to San Francisco to to fuel the gold smelters. We were a suburb. Yeah, right. A distant, distant suburb. That's a long boat ride too. I, and a, that's bad a long, weather. When I do that drive, I'm still like, why am I doing this? I know. Twelve uh, hour drive, but it was a oof. it was long, long boat ride. And then of course San Francisco pre Great Fire. 
of San Francisco was, uh, it was made out of Pacific Northwest lumber. Mm. All of those, those wonderful old buildings down there that burned a crisp. Are you saying it was our fault? Yeah. Because it, if it was we had the, had better, <laughs> we sent them the coal and the wood. <laughs> we sent them the coal to light their wood on fire. <laughs> but what San Francisco did for us was, um, uh, well, we used their filthy lucre that they pulled out of the streams in order to fund our expansion into what is now a global metropolis, Seattle, Washington. Very gradually. I don't know how much we can really credit any particular prospector. <laughs> no, no, it was it was Alaska Gold that did it. Yeah. Um, but San Francisco also had before the bridges that were built there, the Bay Bridge and the uh, and the Golden Gate Bridge. You know, San Francisco's on a bay. Oakland is across. Berkeley is across the water, and so San Francisco was an early uh, community that relied on a kind of mosquito fleet of ferry boats. So many ferries transiting that bay, a big part of the economy. And the ferry boats were uh, many, many companies in in, uh, competition with one another, but they also were part of a transit system. So, you know, uh, one company that was running a kind of integrated system, trains, trolleys, down to boats, um, you know, it was like a transit system, but a, but not yet a public one. There was, yeah, there was no state agency saying, here's the ferry schedule. Right. It was a, and that's, you know, it, that, that continued into the, into the forties. Uh, and then as we'll see in a minute, reintroduced later. That's even how subway systems started. Yeah. Right. You know? I mean, uh, Brooklyn, that's, Manhattan That's why you can't transit. tax the rich or they won't, they won't dig you amazing trains through the bedrock. So one of the big, uh, the big companies at the time was called the key system. And they, they had this kind of integrated system and they were constructing ferry boats as part of their, um, their larger enterprise. The trolley empire. And in 1926, they built, uh, a ferry boat and it was a, a double ended ferry. And that, that's kind of a, um, you know, an innovation you'll see that in, in New York, the Staten Island ferry is that way. It's a boat that you can drive on one side and off the other. It doesn't have to, it doesn't turn around. Right. right. And what that Isn't means is- Isn't that true of our ferries here? Am I it, missing something? No, it is oh. true. And that's one of the, one of the things that makes, you know, the Northwest ferry system, which is the largest ferry system in the world. That is true. Um, they're double-ended ferries and that means they have two motors. Uh, so the boat never has to turn around. It goes in, you drive off and oh, then- I never thought about that. You can't just put the first motor in reverse? <laughs> no, no. The, the, it's two, two separate motors and, and you, and just kind of like sense. Seattle's monorail, the, the, uh, the crew leaves the steering wheel that's facing one way and they walk across the boat to the steering wheel that's facing the other way. So they have two separate, you know, basically- A bridge on each side? It's like a push me, pull me. On the monorail, you can actually see them walk by and you can give them a high five. You never, you never see him do it on the ferry. No, because it's upstairs and yeah. you can't go on. Although back in the 70s, you know, my dad was one of these guys that always walked up to the front of the airplane and said, hey, you mind if we sit and, you know, look in? And I'm a white man I, in my 50s. I used to be. I flew in the Navy. And you would be, probably you would not be amazed at the number of times I sat in the jump seat of the 707 when we were landing because my dad had talked to the pilot and he was like, come on, son, you know, you ever seen a grown man naked? Simpler time. Uh, and we would go up, he would, he would often take us up at, to the, ch- the single chain that kept the bridge separate from the rest of the boat. Uh, and so the Washington state ferry systems, obviously they play a large role in our lives. And the, the ferry system really owes a lot to this early San Francisco 
ferry system. And we often, we often traded boats between the two cities, uh, a boat that had kind of served in San Francisco would, somebody would buy it and bring it up to Puget Sound. And it, it, it was because our, our ferry system, it started around the same time, I guess. You know, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, it's less urbanized on the other side here. And to say of, that it was a, either a system or that it ever started in any, it was just like there was a boat and then there was a second boat and, and you've got the beginnings of a ferry system, yeah. right? Um, but the key system in 1926 uh, was building ships for their system and they built this double-ended ferry and they named it the Peralta after um, like a, a founding Spanish family of, of California. And it had not after Stacy Peralta, the famous skateboarder. No, not okay. after Powell Peralta, uh, the uh, the great skateboard manufacturer. <laughs> what? Uh, so, why are we doing a show about this particular ferry, John? Well, let me tell you, Ken. The Peralta uh, had a had a uh, maybe not a, a noble, but not a not quite an ignoble service in uh, in San Francisco Bay. It was a. It wasn't one of these innovative, du- innovative double-ended ferry boats. Uh, car, is it a car ferry? Like it's for? Is it there motor traffic coming on off and on it? Yep. Early, maybe, maybe er- mostly tra- trucks and freight. I don't know. Early twenties, you would have you would have auto traffic, um, and it was uh, it was somewhat of an ill-fated ship, even at its launching. You know, it's a tradition in in sh- that there would be all kinds of spooky. Uh, superstition about the launching of a ship, right? The um, sailors love that stuff. Yeah, if you say the if you say the wrong three words before you hit the champagne bottle on the on the bow, then everybody, you know, then it's going to be becalmed off of off of Argentina, and and some sailors going to have to drown in order to get the wind back. You know, all this kind of business. And when they when they launched the ship. The ship hesitated briefly before sliding down into the water. It 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 balked, and that that's a thing. That's, that's a bad sign. She didn't want to go in, and all the shipbuilders all ooh, you know, they all looked at the ground like, and it seems that just means somebody didn't do the rails right. It or seems something. like a real bummer to like to throw all that on a ship. It's not the ship's fault. It's even in the water, it's gravity. But it turned out, at least in the case of the Peralta, to be. Somewhat true, and after six years of service uh, in the bay, uh, at a uh, it was docking at the terminal in Oakland, and it's just in the very nature of a ferry boat that when the ferry boat comes into dock, everybody on the boat moves to the front of the boat. You're about, all about to get off, but yep. it requires a certain amount of ballast. And uh, when we load ferry boats here in the Northwest, there's a whole crew of people putting the heavy trucks in the middle, putting the cars out to the left, you know, right. balance is a big part of the way they load a ferry. And it even happens on planes. The way they offload it. You get yelled at if you switch to the other side. No, no, no. This, you know, have you ever seen this happen? Some, no, cuz I'm a white guy. I I never get yelled at. Somebody moves <sighs> seats and they're like, uh, "Actually, sir, no, we've we've already figured out we had need this many." I mean, it, mostly on smaller planes. Yeah, but. no, I always move seats and they're always like, "Can I get you a free drink?" and I'm like, "I don't drink, thanks." Yeah, the plane probably crashes but, then. But I'll take some popcorn. I've never been on a plane that crashed. You're exactly the kind of big guy that should not be just calling on Audible on moving seats. The thing is I know enough about uh, balance in aircraft that I always put myself 
you know, directly over the wing. You don't even have to think about it. I'm Instinctively, like, you move to the place that that helps the the plane. You know, you uh, guys flight. think the plane is balanced, but I know how to balance. I've been giving it some thought. Uh, so uh, on this on this uh, fateful day in February of 1928, a bunch of they, the boat pulled into the dock. A bunch of people surged to the front. They had not properly ballasted the boat, and the front of the ferry sank oh. into the water. And uh, a bunch of you know a bunch of water then swamped the front of the boat. Five people died. It was kind of a big, uh, you know, it was sort of a big, ugly moment. The boat was put back into service. It continued into the early 1930s, you know, with a little bit of a shadow over it. And then in the early 30s, there was a big fire on the, again, at the Oakland Terminal. It started in a tr- in a train trolley shed adjacent to the to where the boat was docked. But the 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 fire basically raged and burned everything above the waterline off of the Peralta. Wow! So it was just the just the the, the, the the bones of it. Yeah the 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 kind of the floating carcass. All the superstructure was gone, and uh, and it was just the hull. But the hull was not nothing, and was was discovered by a man by the name of Alexander Peabody, who was the president of a Seattle-based ferry company called the Puget Sound Navigation Company. And he saw in this hull an opportunity to buy a cheap hull, tow it up to Puget Sound, rebuild the boat in a new, and make a new ferry for what what was called the Black Ball Line. Puget Sound Navigation Company was called the Black Ball Line. And in San Francisco, all the, the boat companies had these these kind of racy names. There was the the blue and gold, the red and white. You know, different ferry lines all had. I don't know why. I guess red, more, black. There's more gold. glamour. I mean, it's it's a little bit like a. You know, it's the closest thing to a sea voyage. Maybe a lot of these city folks will ever take. So it's not it's not like the subway. It's not a public utility back then. It's it's an exciting day out. Yeah, exciting. And both of these uh, both of these cities, San Francisco and Seattle, they're inland. Bays are very foggy, kind of, uh, they're, they're, they're bigger than a, they're bigger than a bread basket. They feel like seas. Yeah. And so, yeah, you get out there, the sea is rough, the fog rolls in. It seems like a bigger operation than just part of your commute until you meet somebody who commutes from Winslow to Seattle every day and just wants to be left alone to read their newspaper. That's, Although that, that kind of dates me. That's probably the majority of. I mean, unless it's like a sunny we- summer weekend, that's the majority of Washington State Ferry. Yeah, they just sit in their cars. They're not and... having fun. I always see the people sitting in their cars, and I think you sir are dead inside. Yeah, right. Go up get on the, out. Go up go on up, the deck. You know, look at the seagulls, but they're just like, I'm just trying to get to Seattle, man. Leave me alone. The invention of the cell phone probably tripled the number of people who just sit in their cars on the ferry. The last time I got, I I, I took the Vashon Ferry a couple of times this past week, and. Uh, I'm sad to say one of the times I just sat in the car. My kid, when my, I found out my kids were sitters in the car, I just thought I have failed. I've said, you know, the ferry, Come on up. They've got uh, jigsaw puzzles on the Edmonds Ferry. Three days after I was born, I took a, my first Washington State Ferry, the, the uh, Edmonds to Kingston route. I've been on ferries my whole That's also my first ferry, life. by the way. Edmonds, Kingston. Yeah. We used well, to take that all the time. Yeah. But we would just go for fun, get ice cream, come back. We lived in Kingston and my dad worked in Seattle, so we- he commuted every day on the freaking boat. I, I was on it all the time. And I was always a get out of the car and go to the top of the deck, but no, times have changed. I'm just a, 
it's just that's because we didn't have phones. We had those little things where you press the button and it squirts the hoops and through the water. Uh, no, you know what? <laughs> you know what it is? It's COVID has closed the 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 cafe, so you can't get the hot dog and popcorn that used to that used to make a ferry boat ride so exciting. I got I got my kids ferry food once, and it's it's pretty gross. The ferry well, food, yeah, it's gross. But what do you you know? So is prison food, but it's all you got. I never actually went to the cafe much. You're kidding? No, I would just go up to the top deck. The sun deck, yeah, we call it here hot, on the Washington State Ferry System. Hot dog and popcorn is what we called it. Anyway, there uh, in the 30s, the black ball line uh, brought the, the hull of the Peralta up to Lake Washington uh, to a shipyard there that used to be like a major shipbuilding center there. What's, what's right, now? Right at the port? Or? Well, no, Kirkland. Oh, really? Uh, Kirkland used to be where... where boats got made. Now it's just where people spend too much for a waterfront condo. Why would you do... So they 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 put the cut through Mott Lake and then they just started building big ships in Lake Washington. Yeah, maybe because it's smoother water. Yeah, it's it's um it's just calm and and there was a I guess a good deep water moorage there. Even now, if you go look at the waterfront in Kirkland, huh. your eye can refocus and there's actually a like a a little shipbuilding center there that's not just pleasure boats. There's there until recently there was a big. Ocean-going vessel parked there. So what did they do to the Peralta? Well, so they were going to build a new superstructure on the Peralta. And um, at the time, the real shipbuilding center in the Northwest was across Puget Sound from Seattle in a town called Bremerton. And it was the naval center of shipbuilding for, well, really a lot of the Pacific coast. All of the, it was a, a major shipyard. And it remains a major Navy shipyard Still to this a big day. Naval. We just had a chat with a omnibus listener who's stationed there now. Who's stationed there? Who who uh, has just been taken out of? Uh, he he just lost his last ship, not because he not because of any fault of his, but because the ship was poorly made. And uh, and he's waiting for his next commission or his next not commission. He's waiting for his next ship. What do you call that? I don't know. Is there a word for that? It's not captaincy because he's not a captain yet. Not a captain yet. He's, he's, he's been approved. He's, he's bucking for captain. But if you go over and drive around Bremerton, even now, it's an, an it, it's uh, it's where a lot of ships are mothballed. Uh, that was where the USS Enterprise ended its its um, its reign as aircraft carrier of the of the world. Uh, there's lo- there are a lot of aircraft carriers stacked up there even now, and I don't think. They're not mothballed so much as they are just waiting to be dismantled. They're just chilling. And there's one of those in San Francisco Bay too. I don't know if you remember when you would drive when you would drive into San Francisco and, and cross over that big slough and there'd be all those World War II era Navy ships just tied up to one another. Kind of really close to uh, that the San Francisco shipyard that was there right in the region right across the, the, the river from the Port Chicago incident that we talked about on a, on a long ago omnibus that I do remember. Is that the one where, um, they go to in Star Trek four to steal the, the fissionable yeah. material from the enterprise? Yeah. Oh, well, that's Alameda actually, right? Yeah, no, it was, that's a different one. I don't think they kept the enterprise up river and you know, they did end up bringing it up to Puget Sound. Ken, I know you're a busy guy and we talk about Mack Weldon clothes a lot, but let me introduce you to Mack Weldon's radically efficient daily wear system. This is a selection of clothes that are rooted in smart design, made with performance fabrics, and built to work together. A coordinated 
outfit system of breathable t-shirts and polos, stylish button, button-up shirts and shorts, underwear, and beyond. Mac Weldon makes it easy for you to dress for work. I don't have to. Dress for work, leisure, and play wherever life takes you. Let me tell you about some of this stuff, Ken. For an ultimate lazy Sunday, and I know that your Sundays are full of church and other work stuff. My Sunday's super lazy. For instance, for the ultimate lazy Sunday, their ace sweatshorts have modern tailoring and pair perfectly with their ultra-soft, ultra-upgraded Pima tees. For weekend travels, both near and far, their silver knit polo and radius shorts are the perfect high-tech, highly packable combo. Buy some time with the Mack Weldon Daily Wear System for 20% off your first order. Visit MacWeldon.com slash Omnibus and enter promo code Omnibus. That's MacWeldon.com slash Omnibus. Promo code Omnibus for 20% off. Mac Weldon, radically efficient wardrobing. But this shipyard in the 30s was a booming business, and the Black Ball Line wanted a uh, a new ferry to make that run, um, the, the Cross Puget Sound, Seattle to Bremerton run, because there were a lot of people that were doing that commute, actually working in the shipyard and living in Seattle. Still probably, that's the most, you think that's the most taken ferry route up here? That's a busy route. I think that the Kingston Edmonds Ferry is is a major, major. That, that one backs up more for sure. Well, it's all those people trying to get out to Kitsap County. Kitsap yeah. County. When when we said at the uh, at the beginning, middle of this episode that we were going to talk about Seattle, this is really we're we're just going to get down into the minutia. Like, what route do you take <laughs> if you're at ninety nine and I often will not take Edmonds Kingston just because it backs up first. Like on a weekend, well, what do you do? You take Winslow Ferry and drive up. You can take Winslow and drive up, but honestly, if there's more than a wait, an hour wait at Edmonds, you should just drive around. You should take Tacoma Narrows Bridge. But there, but that's so jammed up now that that whole get across the bridge thing that sometimes the traffic's backed up all the way to Tacoma. Tacoma often has a little bit of a backup. But my rule of thumb is if you have to wait for more than one ferry at Edmonds, you should do it by dry land. Really? Yeah. Huh. The you land know, route, the land route to uh, the peninsula. When we lived in Kingston, my mom and dad, I'm sure I've, I've told you this before, but they kept a car in Winslow. They kept a car in uh, Edmonds. So they could just passenger ferry? And they kept a car in uh, downtown Seattle in a garage. Well, that must be nice, Mr. Monopoly. Well, this was in the old days when you could just park your car, you know, it was $5 a month or whatever it yeah. was. And in and, and Winslow and in Edmonds, they could just park on the street and it, they never, nobody ever cared. And so, yeah, they did this thing where he would... And then they had one car in, in motion and he would take the passenger ferry, he'd call from a phone booth, like I'm going to be in Winslow. And then she would drive down or he would get the car and drive up a lot of, it was a big, a lot so, of fun. So do you think back then even your parents time. talked in that newsreel voice? Absolutely. <laughs> Until 1974, everyone talked like this. It just stopped like one day. They're like, wait a second, the curse is broken. Well, you know, they talk like normal people when they talk, but as soon as they're on a telephone or anything like that, Hello? Hey, oh, get on the wire. What are you doing there? What do you know, Joe? Anyway, so they began rebuilding the boat, and this is in the mid-1930s, which was a time where modernism had really, you know, kind of modernism in the form of art deco, in the form of streamlining. This was an era when we were transitioning from biplanes to monoplanes, from from, uh, 
wood to steel, from steel to aluminum. Oh yeah, there were there was new technological advances, right? New kinds of welding and, yeah. and aluminum. You could suddenly you could kind of have curved metal shapes on things for the first time. Yeah, the Howard Hughes was was really pushing the um, pushing streamlining in aircraft design. Like no more rivets. We're gonna and even trains started to have that great kind of swoopy look. locomotive. Yeah, it was all part of a you know it was part of a, a like a arts movement that we've kind of discussed, you know, tangentially in a lot of different episodes, but the desire to have this modern streamlined look and also the, the feeling that, that, that streamlining wasn't just design, but it was really functional. You that know? must've been a great feeling that like the new artistic trend actually led to better devices and a stronger economy. I mean, today the two things just seem so disparate. You can't really imagine some fine artists, you know, starting some arts world trend that actually affects aircraft or spacecraft or factories. Right. Hard to imagine how Banksy is going to make like a, a <laughs> spacecraft any different. <laughs> but uh but it was sort of proposed and and uh, and there's it's actually still a mystery exactly what the process was by which the Peralta was transformed into this modernistic art deco masterpiece that became the Calacala. It looks um, like the Chrysler building horizontally. Yeah. Made out of, and, and some of it's a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a faint in the sense that the Calacala was actually made of steel, but painted aluminum colored. Oh, just to look f new to look, to look yeah, more modern new and, and fancy. And also I think pr predominantly the Calacala has built on the, on the hull of a, of a old fashioned ferry. I mean, the top of the line, 1926 ferry, but now we're in 1935. So there's this some is, structural limitations based on their chassis. And, and, and as part of, uh, as part of making the transformation, they actually narrowed the beam of the ship somewhat considerably. It was, it, and the beam being the, the width of the boat at, at, at its widest. Um, it was a 68 foot beam, when it was the Peralta and they narrowed it to 55 feet. So considerably. And I think based on the idea that, you know, narrower was sleeker and slimmer, is, but is this for looks or speed? Uh, both. Yeah. And you know, there's a, there is a formula in ship design that, um, that I think is poorly understood or at least poorly understood by me, uh, that the well, longer, you would know, I guess <laughs> the longer the ship, the faster it is, and it's why the it's why the biggest. And we talked about this in the um, Cuddy Sark. In the uh, well, not we have we done an episode on the Cuddy Sark? I'm afraid. Oh, we called it something else. It was about the race, the T race, right? The T race. No, it was, we talked about it again in the uh, in the episode about the world's largest ship, oh, the Sea Wise uh, Giant. The Giant. The longer the boat, somehow. Um, it's progress through the water is you can make it a faster ship and it's why aircraft carriers are so long. I mean, they need to be long for airplanes to land. That on means that. an infinitely long ship could go infinitely fast. There is a little bit of a, of a scientific paradox. I think if maybe paradox is the wrong word, but an infinitely long, if a ship was as long as the longer. world, yeah. it would be able to go around. Well, and it know, would, and it would, it would already be there. It wouldn't right. be a double ended ship. It would be a zero ended <laughs> ship. Uh, so in redesigning the boat, you know, this is a time also when one of the major industries in, in Seattle and in Washington was the Boeing company, which was 
also working in this new novel design. That's where it really matters, right? You know, no, no rivets or, you know, that's where you really care about that kind of stuff. So, so this kind of, uh, it, it feels somewhat like a collective effort. There, there, there's even a suggestion that the original, um, the original idea came from Peabody's mom, who said, "Why don't you make it a hey? Why don't you make it a, uh, like a like a deco boat?" His wife uh, took credit for the for the suggestion, um, but no one actually has demonstrated huh. uh, like an ironclad claim to have designed this boat, which was or even aluminum clad claim. Or even an aluminum painted steel clad claim. Uh, no one takes. No one can prove credit for designing it. And it's really kind of a a one of a kind marvel. It's not. It doesn't look like other ships of the time, right? It's an it's an icon of design that became a very very famous, like nationally internationally famous ferry boat. I remember the first time I, I you know I never saw it in person, but I remember walking out of this just a block from this. Um, this place we used to like to eat in Port Angeles, which now we can't because I think they're all weirdo anti-maskers. Like oh. at the height of the pandemic, this gastropub put up some sign that was like, wink, wink, we can't ask about your underlying health conditions if you don't wear your mask. That's you know. And But just a block from there, there's a massive mural on the street in Port Angeles. That's just yeah. a, kind of a beautiful kind of period looking view, like one, an old travel poster of the Kalakala racing across the sound. And it... It looks like a, you know, an alternate future. It looks like some boat that never existed. Yeah, even now, the Buck Rogersness of it yeah. is really extraordinary, and it became a, a muse for artists. And we'll see that plays a, a large role in its future, um, or in, in its life. Uh, so, a, an out of work Boeing engineer named Lewis Proctor, uh, like made a made a scale model of it, and and actually the model was what they based the design or the, the construction of the boat on. These were you know back in the days, I guess, where you could you could carve out a, a wood model painted aluminum, and they'd go, oh no, we know what to do. You know, the engineer would come in and take a tape measure. Yeah, we'll make this bigger. Yeah, this is nice. <laughs> this is nice. We can do it. Uh, so they built um, they built a new boat on top of the Peralta, and. It was no longer a a, uh, a double ender in the sense that they took the they took what would have been I guess the front engine out because they wanted it to they needed a fast boat. This was going to be a, a a ferry that made multiple crossings in a day, and they wanted it. Part of the selling point was like get across the the sound to Bremerton, you know, in in record time. And so they fitted it with what at the time was an enormous engine, a 3,000 horsepower diesel engine that, uh, that, you know, that sped the boat across the water. And in doing so, I mean, it, you know, it could get to get up to 18 knots, but in doing so, they made it a single ender. They put the, they put the engine in the back of the boat. It was still, you could still drive off the front, but there was a, the streamlined nose of the boat became a clamshell. Instead of an open, oh, I see it. It you get there and it opens. It opens and and you don't have to you don't have to get off in reverse, right? Okay, and um, and so it has this kind of um, they made they went to great lengths to streamline it in in uh, 
in the hopes that it would increase its efficiency and increase its speed. Like they, they Frenched in all the running lights. Um, it's, um, you know, it looks like a porpoise and they moved the, they moved the, the bridge, the cabin on top where the bridge sits, they moved it further back so that it kind of looks like the cockpit of a, of an aircraft. And in a way, it kind of looks like the saucer of the USS Enterprise, the space one. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, the, uh, the a center, a, the the center bridge of a of a flying saucer. Although this yeah. is kind of pre pre flying saucer, pre flying saucer, right? And may have influenced the flying saucer. Yeah, that's where they got the idea. They were buzzing around Mount Rainier, and they were like, "Hey, look at that ferry!" But all the portholes were were perfectly round circles, but not in a like yo ho ho way, but in a kind of um, you know, it really does. It really does look modern. They outfitted it with all the mod cons. Little Jules Verne. So it's fancy? Yeah, the 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 seats were all velvet. They had a they had a men's club in the in the uh in the hull, but there was a, a women's club upstairs. There was an orchestra that <laughs> was uh you know part of the boat uh that you know that played Back and forth in the basement, they had in the basement, deep in the hold, they had showers and a locker room for the workers. It's like flying on Emirates or something. Yeah, it was a really, it was a really, uh, like elegant thing, particularly for Puget Sound in the 1930s, which was not. Sure, it's a blue collar. Yeah, I mean that's that's um, that's not what I associate with 30s Seattle at all. No, and this is making a trip to you know the the ultimate working class des- destination, you know, a shipyard. shipyard yeah. But it, uh, the ship immediately was a sensation and, uh, people, you know, it was a tourist attraction. It, uh, routinely, I think in the first six years of its service, it had a million passengers a year. And this is at a time when the population of the city of Seattle was a hundred thousand, 120,000 people. So I mean, it's a tourist, it's a tourist draw, right? It's a tourist draw and an, and a nationally, recognized icon, uh, before the, before the space needle, if you sent a postcard from Seattle, it had a picture of the Kalakala. That's funny. It's cause it's kind of forgotten now in, you know, in the nation at large, yeah. um, two, 2000 passengers Two it, it was, a, it was enormous. That's huge. 2000 passengers could fit on board, but in the, sh- in the shortening of the beam or the narrowing of the beam and the clamshelling of the front, it really made it not a very efficient car transporter because the 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 car lanes all had to be narrowed. The, well, they all had to funnel into that and funnel through the thing, the barn door at the front. But even the even the narrowing of the beam meant that there was very little room between cars. And and as as you know from getting on ferries now, that little bit of space between cars, even now on these giant Washington State ferries, you kind of have to turn sideways to get past these big trucks. Yeah. Um, capacity of the, the car ferry portion was, was reduced, but there were five decks on the Kalakala. So you could put 2000 people on there. And it also did a night business after the commutes were over. It would then go out and do pleasure pleasure cruises cruises, with the, uh, with the orchestra in, in, in full flight. Actually, Kalakala is a Chinook jargon word oh, there's a there's a show we remember That's despite right. having done it a year ago and it means flying bird uh named you know uh, and it was kind of it means flying bird in chinook jargon which is 
hard, is, hard exactly to know. May not exactly reflect any indigenous tribe. Right. Oh, oh, the Flying Birds was the name of the orchestra. And that was the name of the ah. orchestra. And actually, naming the Kalakala the Kalakala began the tradition that still is true in the Washington State Ferry System of naming all their ships after Native American, you know, terms. So that was the first, the first of many. It's began a new a new way to this day to this day i believe every single ferry is generally they're chosen as place names now but they're also native words but there were a lot of disadvantages or the, there were a lot of things about the way the boat was made that put it at a great disadvantage the um moving the the bridge back in order to create the streamlined look meant that it was impossible to see out of the bridge <laughs> and the uh, the Kalakala was constantly involved in accidents and crashes <laughs> it crashed into no fewer than 12 boats in its time and almost Captain's like sorry sorry <laughs> sorry didn't see, didn't see you there oops i mean it would crash into tugboats that were there to help it's it always dock. leaving notes on windshields it uh it crashed into the coleman dock in seattle so many times that it actually like permanently uh like malformed the Coleman dock from just like every time we don't know where the, and it's one of the, one of the great uh, ballets of Washington state ferries that they come into these docks and put, put reverse on the engine or the front engine they turn on and you see the water boil (laughs) up and the boat can just ease in enormous ship. Just ease it's in. fantastic. And they've got Barely like, they, you know, they got a bunch of tires and stuff if it ever yeah. bumps, but it doesn't usually bump. No, although you've surely been on a boat that did bump. <laughs> you, you notice when it does. It's pretty exciting. The Kalakala bumped pretty much every time. Um, but it was still beloved. And, it, and the Kalakala was outfitted with the first ever, right after World War II, it was outfitted with the first ever commercial radar Available on a ship, a technology developed oh, during the it was, war. It was only military ships that had radar until until forty six. Wow! And the, uh, the Kalakala actually had the FCC license number zero zero one for <laughs> uh, for radar use. But the maybe defining feature of it, and the and the worst feature was that the hull of the uh, of the Peralta still powering this machine was not or not powering but still still the functional architecture of it. Yeah. The the giant 3000 horsepower motor situated in the in the hull of this ship not designed to accommodate it had there's some suggestion that it had been slightly misaligned and the Kalakala suffered from incredible vibration when it got up to speed. So although it could make that crossing at 18 knots it was. It didn't because it would rattle the lunch counter in the lounge. Bouncing and loud, and um, so would they go more slowly, or would, would it just be a, a wilder ride? It was just kind of the. It was just part of the experience of the Kalakala, and you 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 wonder what it would have been like if they'd actually re- just built it from the water up, yeah, um, and given it an actually like new streamlined hull as well. Uh, the black ball line. Wanted people in Seattle to call it the Silver Swan, uh, but it eventually became known kind of as the Silver Slug because uh, it looks like a slug. Got him. It does look kind of like. A and slug. Uh, it also had some other names. That galloping, the Galloping Ghost was another one because of its because of its slammerama. But by the mid fifties, 
times were changing. The Kalakala fell somewhat um, out of fashion. The new Washington State, the new the new fifties uh, modernized fairies, which don't look Art Deco, look very much like the fairies we have today. Back to double enders, those iconic white and green fairies were all introduced in the 1950s. More efficient. More efficient and just more, you know, accommodate more cars. When the Kalakalau was, uh, first went into service, cars were a lot smaller. In 19, right. in the 1930s, it could accommodate 110 cars. But by the 1960s, when Fins. cars got all fat, it could only, it was half. It could only hold <laughs> 60 cars of the, of the 60s style. So in the 50s, it moved out to Port Angeles where- um, Oh, that's why it's there. Yeah, where it did the Port Angeles to Victoria, Canada run across right. the water. And that was that then became a, a part of the, the, um, the Juan de Fuca culture yeah. up there. But by 1967, oh, and during the World's Fair, it was actually brought back into service to Bremerton as part of, uh, you know, the World's Fair in Seattle was all about that modern style. And it actually did tours uh, over to Bremerton, like fast tours for people that were visiting the fair. So for one last time, it was like a big symbol of Seattle. You'd see the Space Needle and you'd- See the Kalakala. Hop on the Kalakala. Yeah, the fancy, fancy imitation aluminum boat. (laughs) But by the 60s, it was retired from service and it was purchased by uh, some Alaskans that were looking for a floating fish cannery. Isn't, Isn't that every Alaskan? I mean, just I looking, looking for the floating fish. Cannery. When I was in Alaska, I was I just was so tempted to put my money into floating fish canneries. Gotta have an FFC. But it went up to a little town on Kodiak Island called Uzinki, and it worked as a fish cannery. And after a few years, they just took it to Kodiak and uh, basically beached it. Just sat there, and it became a a cannery. And over the over the time that it was in Kodiak. From about 1970 until the late 80s, uh, they just modified it. You know, they took all the, the obviously the velvet seats were gone. And over time, they modified it to be a better cannery, which meant they, they poured it. Th- at some point, they had to take out the orchestra. They took the orchestra out. They, they, <laughs> After they, the first 10 years. They sent them packing, <laughs> although it was great for the canners at first. Uh, they poured in a cement floor. They put up drywall. Oh, this is kind of sad. Uh, they put a, a like a, a dropped ceiling, like an asbestos dropped ceiling. They made, made it look like a nothing. I like salmon as much as the next guy, but this is making me sad. But it sat there on the shore in Kodiak, just rusting this weirdly futuristic uh, spaceship boat that was now... Looks like a crashed spaceship. Yeah, a crashed spaceship in the mud of Kodiak. The you know, I mean, Kodiak Island. Even now, not really a space age. Careful, place. <laughs> we, we might have we might have as many as three listeners. No, we absolutely we absolutely do have some fishermen that are probably listening to this uh, in their in their desolate little hotel in Kodiak. Uh, so enter into the picture a man by the name of Peter Bevis, who was a Seattleite or a Washingtonian, who came from a came from money, a wealthy family, and he was uh, maybe the indulged son of a wealthy family who went into the arts. <laughs> like all artists, he had a trust fund, and he became a he became a. a 
like a well-known artist in the Northwest and his most famous, um, set of artworks was he would go out and pick up roadkill and then cast them in bronze. Okay. So, he, <laughs> you know, he's so, got to hand it to the guy. He's so, got a thing. He's got a thing. And people, you know, people who knew him, like people in the Northwest, if they saw a fox or a coyote dead on the side of the road, they'd call up Peter Bevis and he'd run out and get it and dip it in bronze and uh, make uh, this, you know, and it's, it's not like beautiful. It's, vul- it's kind of vulgar or it's gr- gross. It's like a, it's not a fox. It's a dead fox. But he's a, you know, 1980s contemporary artist. So yeah. And he was, people don't mind the ugliness. He was doing a lot of that kind of thing. He would, uh, he would dress up as a construction worker and, uh, go out and put orange cones on the side of the road and a big sign that said roadkill ahead. And then, you know, make a bit, and then it's like they're, you drive and there's the roadkill. Was there supposed to be some animal rights subtext, some I, ecological I thing? I think it was the eighties and he was doing, uh, he was doing art as you say, like he, he started the Fremont foundry, which mm. was a, like a metal working foundry there in Fremont. And they were responsible for reconstructing the giant statue of Lenin, uh, after, the collapse of the Soviet Union that right. that even now sort of towers over central Fremont. So he was one of these Seattle art agitators. And on a fishing trip to Kodiak in 1984, he saw the Kalakala and was astonished and chagrined that the Seattle icon was beached up here. And he began a, um, he started a group called the Kalakala Foundation and he and his you know, ragtag band of artists started to try and raise money to bring the Kalakala back to Seattle. Save the Kalak Tower. And they went up to, uh, they went up to Kodiak and they, in their, their kind of like excited early forties art energy, they did a bunch of work themselves to try and take out all of the uh, the garbage that had been put in there. He ended up being, he raised enough money to buy the Kalakala and then over the course of several years, managed down here in Seattle in the arts community to raise enough money to bring the Kalakala back to Seattle. And in the late 90s, finally had put together uh, the funding and support. And, and his vision was to uh, restore the Kalakala to its former grandeur. And as a ferry or? As a pleasure cruiser, as a thing, you know, yeah. to ply the waters of Puget Sound, probably he'd put the flying bird orchestra back on board and use it as a yeah, boost cruise, a destination, right? A boost cruise. Um, and maybe wedding cruises. I mean, if you had a wedding with two, 2,000 people or larger, cause you wouldn't be using the car deck. So you could have, you could put 6,000 people. You could put there. the poor people down there. Yeah. Right. Irish. So he towed it to Seattle and brought it right into the center of town, uh, right down Pier 66, right down on the waterfront and had a, you know, had a big publicity campaign. We're going to raise money every, all we need to do is get $12 million. And, and, um, I think his mom helped fund some of the initial process and, uh, then, he didn't quite raise the, and this really has echoes of the SS United States. I was thinking about, how can we remember all these other uh, Omnibai? 
But yeah, not Hands Across America. Hands Across America just... What was happening that day? Maybe Hands Across America is so in my general wheelhouse that I just... You're always thinking about... You generally spend an hour or so on a Wednesday thinking about Hands Across America, so you didn't remember doing a podcast. You know, George Michael died when he was my age, 53 years old. Oh, wow. And as far as I could tell, George Michael did not die of drugs, although he certainly did drugs. But at least as far as I could tell, he died of a heart enlarged heart or something. Fifty three years old, George Michael. Well, I want to live as long as Andrew Ridgely, who is still alive and therefore possibly immortal. That's right, and still married to may never uh, die. the the um, one of the gals from Bananarama. That's right. So uh, the Kalakala uh, overstayed its welcome in the center of downtown Seattle because, despite their work, it looked terrible. Uh, the rust was peeking through everywhere on the the aluminum paint. All the windows were knocked out of it. It, it, it was a fish cannery by all, for, you know, to all appearances. Smelled like crab entrails. So he had it towed over into Lake Union, which also is the very center of Seattle. I mean, you you he just moved it from sure. the actual center to the, you know. I mean, at least on the waterfront, nobody can see it from the other side. You put right. it in Lake Union and, you know, there's going to be a lot of neighborhoods complaining. You can see it all over town. And for a couple of years there in Lake Union, it became an actual, um, it became an arts, an edgy arts place. It was always kind of off limits, uh, because it was tremendously unsafe. Uh, he lived in it briefly. Peter Bevis moved into the moved into the the meat locker in the old kitchen. He loved the roadkill aesthetic. And he I think he actually had like a campfire that kept him warm because he was an artist, right? He was roadkill. Oh, and, and also Bevis, uh, during the Exxon Valdez spill, he went up and, and bronzed dead otters as part of his, his – Overall project. Imagine that guy watching CNN headline news every day, hoping that there's some, some new dead animal yeah. he can cast. Let me go find find the latest dead animal. Well, he, I I just wonder where those bronzes are now. It's not a thing that you would get rid of, but it's also not a thing you'd really have in your living room. I don't see them in galleries. Here. No, I don't either. Uh, anyway, so uh, there was a brief moment in the late '90s, early 2000s when. Art happenings happened on the derelict Kalakala. Like unofficially, people would kind of sneak on. Uh, there were there there were there were concerts. Uh, my friend Evan Kane, the the uh, violinist, did a did a uh, like a show or like a live uh, recording of his band Moom. Um, there was a like a pirate radio station set up in there briefly. <laughs> when I was in Harvey Danger. Uh, there was scheduled a photo shoot for the band in the Kalakala. And when we were getting ready to go to do the photo shoot, the four original members of Harvey Danger said to me and Mike Squires, the new hired gun members of Harvey Danger, you know what? I think for this article, we're just going to have the four of us. (laughs) And so I, you know, Mike and I were there with our, with our uh, hair combed 
and they went and did it. But you can still see the Harvey Danger Kalakala. But you missed your shoots. chance. That was your. You did you ever go aboard? I didn't. You know, it was right there. I saw sure. it all the time. We, we, everywhere we drove, it was there. But no, my opportunity, and I, that was. I wasn't in the like. Let's go on board the spooky ship mode at the time because I had a girlfriend and she was already impressed. I didn't need to impress her with that kind of thing. Um, and Scooby-Doo had taught you just to avoid yeah, spooky ships. Don't get on spooky ships. But 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 it was a place. And I remember a lot of different people having theater happenings and whatnot there. Mm-hmm. But eventually Lake Union, the shipyard where it was uh, moored, did not want it anymore. It was, um, it was kind of listing and it was – there were many, many last-ditch attempts to raise the money – to resurrect the Kalakala. And a lot of it was was presented to the city of Seattle as a kind of almost a guilt trip. Sure. Like, well, why wouldn't they? I mean, this was the symbol of their city for decades. Yeah, this was our thing, right? And, um, and it, you know, it, okay, it needs a few million. Yeah, a few million or maybe 20 million, but whatever it needs, like, why can't we? We're a rich town. We got local millionaires. But nobody wanted to, like the SS... Uh, America, SS United States, nobody quite wanted to do it. And I think the thing about restoring a ship is it's always bigger than a bread basket. It's just a money pit, right? So eventually Peter Bevis had it towed again all the way out to Nia Bay, which is the furthest northwest that's, corner of Washington. That's the furthest northwest corner of anything. I mean, that's it's, right. I mean before Alaska, that's where America ends. And that, that, uh, that, whole area is owned by the Macaw tribe and he contracted with them to moor the boat there. But very quickly the Macaw realized, wait a minute, this is a derelict boat and you don't have the money. And this, we this don't, guy hasn't been paying his, his fees in Seattle. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need that. We don't need the hassle. So at that point, I think Bevis ran out of steam. Um, and he sold the boat to, a man by the name of Steve Rodriguez, who was Steve Rodriguez, who had a similar plan. He was going to take it to Tacoma and he was, he had the money to envision himself buying old ferry boats from around the country, bringing them all together to Tacoma and restoring them into a, a mighty mosquito fleet of vintage ferries that were going to be some kind of crazy that was going to define Puget Sound, the vintage ferries running everywhere. I love the idea. Uh, but he couldn't, he also couldn't get it together. He fought, um, he, he ended up uh, getting in real Dutch with the port of Tacoma. Because he wasn't paying his bills. Yeah, he wasn't paying his bills and he wasn't, he kept promising um he had he had a big vision but he never was able to actually convert and by 2011 the coast guard had declared it a hazard to navigation it was sitting in the in the port of tacoma rusting and listing and sinking and rodriguez as a sort of last ditch maneuver uh the state sued him to Remove the boat, and he countersued the state of Washington, saying saying that Washington had an obligation to fix the Kalakala, a moral and nautical obligation, a moral <laughs> obligation to to uh, preserve this icon of the Northwest. I guess the law is the law recognizes no such. Obligation. He, he sued the state for fifty million dollars to fix the boat, 
And yeah, unfortunately. Probably the, kind of as a publicity standoff, right? In hopes of getting some donors to step in, but. Yeah, yeah, it was not a, uh, it was not a success. And by this point in time, I don't know if you ever saw the Kalakala in Tacoma, but it was a, it was a hopeless cause. When you look at the uh, the SS United States, it still looks like a ship, uh, but the Kalakala looked like. Um, well, it hadn't it hadn't been anywhere in forty years almost. It looked like a reef at oh. that point, but it was still floating. Um, in the end, the owner of the dock where the Kalakala was moored, Carl Anderson, uh, took the took the the wreck at, in exchange for back rent that he was owed. Um, by Rodriguez. And in 2015, it was scrapped. Oh, just for parts? It and, was scrapped. Well, it was metal, probably. It, yeah, taken apart uh, where it sat. And a few things that hadn't been stripped off of it long ago, a few portholes and sections of metal were sold off, kind of like when they tore down the music hall and yeah. sold off all of the, the terracotta. Uh, the city of Kirkland, weirdly, owns a couple of major sections of the of the um the upper parts of the the ship that they plan they have like behind a chain link fence over there in Kirkland they plan to make into a I don't know what it's nice that it might be displayed somewhere yeah a little bit of an art installation and I'm sure there are some people in the northwest that have uh like a bronze dead otter and a porthole from the Kalakala in the living room of their <laughs> Of their uh, Redmond Mansion. I guess the problem is just that it had been too long, right? Like, it's not like the Space Needle. Like, even at the time of the fair, it was kind of like the old Grand Dame being brought back for one more spin across the dance floor. It was really, you know, 40s nostalgia. Yeah. And the by the early 2000s, that generation was gone. The people that remembered the Kalakala in service would have been in their 80s, and they'd had multiple opportunities to put their money into... restoring it and partly i think it is that bevis was a quirk a weird artist and like he was the wrong yeah like face for this he went and and bought a bunch of eye patches for his team and they they you know they would wear like eye patches and go r when they would attend fundraising events and the the seattle moneyed class the bullets and and uh, the warehousers i guess just weren't entranced but also in seattle there's always a suspicion of things that are too cool we voted down expanding the monorail we voted down we voted down so many opportunities here central park on the lake and we didn't want that we could have had a subway system here 50 years ago yeah so there we're not visionaries and the Kalakala comes from a time when Seattle was just a footnote. You know, what you know, it was a symbol of Seattle at a time when really nobody had ever seen a postcard from here. You know, um, it was before we had a a national presence. And it wasn't a very good ferry. And that concludes the Kalakala. Entry 681.2S1918, certificate number 19361, in the omnibus. I guess in a way it also concludes Hands Across America Part 2. Hands Across America, red year. Entry 565.PR1121, <laughs> certificate number 26004. <laughs> and maybe we'll do one about the Micro Machines Fast Talking Guy at some point. Who knows? Uh, we were products of our time. We uh, should have spent more time looking at old um, 
We should have spent more time looking at old Omnibus summaries. That apparently would have helped. But instead, we were wasting our time on social media at Omnibus Project or at Ken Jennings. Uh, John was uh, John Roderick on. Uh, I almost said Pinterest. That's I, not true. I, I was John Roderick on Pinterest and Patreon. The the website that I hate so much. I hate it and I hate Yelp both. Find his Etsy store where he's selling uh, bronze roadkill. Unless you work at Pinterest or Yelp, in which case, love your work. Send me, send me free stuff. <laughs> we received email at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. That often helped power our monthly addenda shows, which are a lot of fun. We've got a new one coming out in uh, just a week or two, you know, the end of every month. If you are not listening to those, it's probably because... Uh, you are just not a, a good-hearted person. Otherwise, you would have supported the Patreon at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Mm-hmm. And you would have heard all those. Thanks again to Andrew for suggesting the very omnibusy topic for today's show. Almost just straight down the plate. You, well, and you rescued me because I already knew a lot of that stuff. And I was sitting here studying my notes for Hands Across America trying to figure out how do I get another, how do I squeeze another show out of this without even really knowing what we talked about. <laughs> I was like, okay, Kalakala, I know that story. Nobody's going to listen to him back to back, probably. Uh, you can send us physical items at P.O. Box 55744. Did I say the right number of numbers there? P.O. Box 55744. Yes. Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I, I've found I have this weird cognitive thing where I've said this outro stuff so many times that I can't say it at normal speed or inflection anymore. I kind of have to, you know, I just kind of have to do the the song of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find your fellow futurelings uh, by looking for that word on Facebook or Reddit or Discord, I think. Um, you can certainly, uh, you know, if you like the word futurelings, you can get it on a shirt. There are... Um, oh, so many cool shirts. Some cool Omnibus merch available at omnibusproject.com slash store, I believe. Mm-hmm. Seems on. right. Let me just type that in and see if it resolves. It'll be a fun little project for me. If not, maybe I can remember what the right thing is. Yay, it worked. Yay. Okay, that was correct. And I did that. I did the mail. That seems like it's it's pretty solid, right? Yeah. Yeah, we're 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 there. We're gonna stick the landing on this show. How long is the how long is this show right now? It's pretty long, considering (laughs) that we that you know. Well, we had to talk about Hands Across America and the uh, and the speed talking guy. We did 20 minutes of a different show. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. I should have done this in the voice of the fast talking guy. But if Rados allows, we hope we'll be back to you soon with another Micro Machines. <laughs>